You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. If you're willing and able, if you'll remain standing while we read God's Word, open to Revelation chapter 20. Uh, We are... uh, we are in the short rows, or I guess you could say we are uh, circling Atlanta Airport. Uh, we haven't put the landing gear down yet, but we're about to. Uh, we've only got, I think, about four more sermons in Revelation, and then we're going to uh, pack this one in. So we appreciate you sticking with us from Revelation 1 to all the way to the end. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him, for a thousand years. Father, we bow our heads in this moment. We give praise and thanks and honor. And Father, we just want you to know how grateful we are at the work that you're doing, uh, not only in our fellowship, but in our community. Father, it's so easy that day to day, week to week, that we get so caught up in our schedules and our routines and the ruts that, that we tend to live in that we, we don't raise our head up long enough to see your mighty hand at work. Father, I thank you for the miraculous things you're doing, for the stories that I've heard just this week, even today, of where doctors had given up, but you had not. Father, we praise you that you are at work in a thousand ways, in 10,000 ways, every day in our life. And Father, we thank you that we get to see your hand work. Father, I thank you for these people here this morning, each one, Lord, carrying their own burden. Each one, Father, maybe with struggles this past week, pain this past week, hardship that maybe they could have never planned for, that maybe just this past week their life has took a turn that they could have never planned for or never even imagined. And yet, Father, you are sovereignly in control. The universe is in the palm of your hand. And, Father, we thank you. We find great hope in that fact that not only do you run the universe, But, Father, you're right here in this very room. We understand that no temple, no synagogue, no church building could ever contain you. But yet, Father, we're humbled by the reality that right now in this very room, you are here. And, Father, we're humbled by the fact that there's nothing hidden from you right now in this moment. And, Lord, we're good at hiding things from each other, but nothing is hidden from you. So our heart lays bare before you, our motives, our thoughts, 
the things we've dealt with this week, the things we've handled well, the things we haven't handled well. It's all there. With all your desire is that we would come to you with all of it. I pray that would be exactly what happens today. We ask all this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Over 18 years of ministry, uh, I kind of lost count, but I'm, I'm somewhere... I'm somewhere north of 200 funerals. I know that's hard to imagine. I actually think I'm closer to 300. I actually have some documents where I keep up with this. So I haven't looked at it in a while. But and I know for some of you, you're doing the math right now. Okay, 18 years of ministry, somewhere between two and 300 funerals. That's a lot of funerals uh, in 18 years. And it's been a privilege to serve every one of those families and every one of those circumstances. And every circumstance that you could think of as far as what led to that loved one passing away uh, I've had to walk with families through. But one thing that is common across every one of those families, regardless of whether they were believers in Christ and the one that had passed away was a follower of Christ, or I've done funerals for people who had never stepped foot in a church, had never even opened a Bible, who had never even thought about the concept of eternity until the moment their loved one dies. Uh, when I was in Wilkes County as an associate pastor up there, uh, our chairman of deacons, he was, he was the owner of a funeral home. And oftentimes they would have families that, that had no connections to a church but wanted to have a funeral, and he would call me. This is one of the reasons I've done so many funerals. So there was a lot of these families I never even knew until I walked into the funeral home and met them. And there were many of them who didn't even believe in God. But one of the things that I have found that is universal across all humanity in that moment is that regardless of what you believe about the world and what you believe about God and what you believe about the Bible, in that moment, there's something inside of us that cries out. There's something inside of us that in that moment when their loved one has passed away, that, that we look at that, and even for those who are the most atheist in their worldview, they look at that and somehow they're thinking there's going to be hope here, which is quite frankly incredible. Because if you don't believe in God, if you don't believe that, that there's a God in heaven, then, then how could there be any hope? And for the atheist, the person who dies, well, that's the end. There is nothing beyond that if you're truly, truly believing in the reality that there is no God. But yet, in that moment, if they're honest, they will say, well, you know, I, I know that they've passed away, but I, I still have hope. Hope in what? I, I, have, I have stood by the graveside or, or the viewing at the funeral home or, or the chapel service or the funeral. And I have looked at families in the eyes who have, who have had to walk forward and, and look at an open casket and, and wrestle with everything that their senses are being inundated with in that moment. If you've ever, if you've ever experienced this, you know that after the graveside, after the funeral, those two weeks afterward, you are absolutely physically exhausted. Can I get a witness there? After a funeral, regardless of the circumstances, whether it was a person that had been sick for a long time and you knew their day was coming at any moment and, and you were as prepared as you could be, or it was a tragic accident and that life was taken out way too early, but the, 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 the sequence of events leading up to the funeral on the graveside, those two weeks afterward, you are physically exhausted, you are mentally exhausted, you are spiritually exhausted, and for about two weeks there, you're just almost like a vegetable. You're just, you're checked out. That's why I tell the friends and families of the loved ones, make sure you check on that family the weeks after the funeral because they need you. Why is it you're so exhausted? Why is it that it takes such a toll on you, other than the obvious 
the loss of a loved one, but what is it that's going on in that moment inside of you? Well, we don't talk about it because we don't like to talk about it. But the reality is, is when our loved one passes away and we have to go to the funeral home and we have to do all that's connected with that, we are forced with the reality that we're living on measured out time and that that time one day is going to come to an end. You see, you know this. You know it, but you don't want to talk about it. The reality is, is that your days are measured out. And there is coming a day for every person in this room. My, my grandfather used to t- say this a lot before he died. He, he, he would, I would go to his house and he'd say, he said, boy, he said, everybody, everybody is going to die. And you better know whom you put your faith in before that day comes. He'd say, it, don't ma- it doesn't matter what family tree you're part of. In your family tree, there is, a, there is a thin red line that runs through all of them. You know what it is? Well, death. I know this is really encouraging this morning, isn't it? <laughs> We're getting there. Hang with me. But the reason that is so hard on you is because not only have you lost your loved one, but you are confronted with the reality that your days are numbered out, and we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to talk about the, the fact that all these years have passed and we don't know where they went and, and now we have less years ahead of us than we have behind us. That's a hard thing to talk about. But there's something else you need to understand. Solomon, one of the wisest people to ever live, in his book called Ecclesiastes, it's kind of a depressing book, but right in the middle of that book in chapter 3, verse 11, he says something very profound there. He says that eternity is built within every human being. So get this, when, when, when God is knitting you together in your mother's womb and you, you, are, you become a human being at that point of conception, that God places in you at that moment the concept of life beyond death. Now, it's only till, we, till we're born and we grow up in this broken world where everybody's telling us there is no life after death that we begin to kind of adhere to other worldviews on this. But, but make no mistake about it, if you peel all the layers back at the core of your being, who you are, and I would even say, I would go so far as to say that part of the image of God in you, what we call the Imago Dei, which is part of how God created you, that part of you that will live forever, down deep in the real you, you know that at that graveside, Regardless if you're an atheist or a faithful follower of Jesus, there's something in you that cries out at that graveside or at that moment that this is not, this is not what we're seeing, this is not a period, it's a comma. Now, where does that come from? And folks, I have seen it through all those 200 plus funerals. I have seen it over and over again, regardless of the situation, regardless of where they have their faith, regardless of what the worldview is. They understand that deep down, there's a comma here, not a period, that somehow what they see in front of them is not what is actually the full story of their loved one. Now, you may be wondering, what does this have to do with Revelation chapter 20? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you don't have to turn over there. Paul says something very important. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, he says that to be absent from the body is to be what? To be absent from the body is to be what? One more time. To be absent from the body is to be what? 
All right, so in that text, Paul says that there's two possibilities. You are either at home in this body here and you're absent from the very presence of the Lord. Or, or you are absent from this body and present with the Lord. That's the only two options. All right, now, let's just break this down a little further. Now, this body that you have that we're all looking at, you know, all shapes, sizes, everything in between, all different ages, God has given you this body for a period of time. But get this, your body is not all there is to you. On the inside of you, the real you, there's something the Bible describes as a soul spirit. That part of you, the real you, your personality, your emotions, all that, that is you, get this, that is going to live forever. Now, right now, you're living in this body. The Bible describes it as a shell. The Bible, Bible describes it as uh, a seed that will be planted at some point. The Bible says that the flesh is going to go back to the ground and, and it's going to deteriorate and, and it's going to come to an end. The body as you know it, the body you and I have right now, it's going to come to an end. But you, you will never end. That's an incredible concept, isn't it? You, the real you, there will never be a time where you will not exist. I can't wrap my mind around it, but yet I know it to be true. And you know it to be true because God created you with this understanding without me even telling you. It's incredible. So there's something that cries out from us, not only that we understand eternity, that, that the grave is not a period, it's a comma, but, but not only that, part of this, of who we are, cries out for something better. You see, at every one of those gravesides, every one of those family members, regardless of the situation, you know what they will say? Man, I just wish I had more time. Man, I just wish I could have one more conversation. I just wish we could maybe have another vacation together or have another meal together. If, I could, if we could just, and, there, there's, some, and there's, this, there's almost this like, it's almost like this moment where they're looking beyond this situation say, boy, I, I wish I could have one more opportunity where the reality is when our heart is crying out for that, it is part of what God has placed in us because the reality is it's not a period, it's a comma. And the choices that you make today in this life have enormous impact on this thing we call eternity that will last forever and ever. Last week we saw this great battle in this valley called Megiddo, or we know it as the Battle of Armageddon. In that moment, after all of this seven years of time where this foul leader has risen to power, he's going to bring all of his forces against Christ. In that moment, all the enemies of Christ will gather in that valley, and they will take their last stand to try to unseat God from his throne, and of course, they will fail miserably. Jesus will ride on a horse, and all those who have died in Christ who are with him will ride with him. I will get to ride with Christ in this event. We will not be fighting. We'll simply be there to see the audacity, the power, the majesty of our king in that moment as he destroys all of his enemies. But there's one thing you, you might be thinking. Okay, so in that battle of Armageddon, we saw where, where Jesus destroys the Antichrist, this false leader. We saw where Jesus destroys the false prophet. He takes both of them and throws them into the lake of fire alive. But you may be thinking, well, what about the one great enemy? What about Satan himself? Well, Jesus has destroyed all of his enemies except for one. 
there is one still roaming the earth at this point. And that's what we're going to look at today. God has placed eternity in our hearts. We hear the echoes of eternity all the time. I read the headlines in the news, and I hear people crawling, calling out for change. I hear people calling out for justice. I hear people calling out for the world to be made right. And every time I read that, you know what I think of? God put that there. God put it there. They don't know it, but, they did, but God put that in their heart. So how does God bring about the completion of all of his promises? Well, Revelation 20, is something we call the millennial reign, 1,000 years, is where Jesus brings about the culmination of all the promises that we've seen in the Old Testament and in the New. The world will be under the rule of one righteous king. And this righteous king, being complete perfection, will rule the world with righteousness. And it's in that, in that kingdom that we want to look at and what that kingdom looks like this morning. So let's pick it up in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. We see this several times in the book of Revelation. John sees this mighty angel coming down. So to set the stage, just remember that Jesus and all of his followers, including me, including you, that have your faith in Christ, we are on the earth with Jesus at this point. We have rode with him on horses. We have seen the battle of Armageddon. All of the enemies have been destroyed. And that's where we are at this point. Then John sees an angel coming down. And this angel's holding a key in his hand to the bottom of the spit and a great chain. Verse 2, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him that he might not deceive the nations any longer. So the first characteristic of this, this reign of Christ on the earth, the first characteristic we see is that there will be no more evil, no more sin, no more temptation, no more demonic power. He is going to be bound. Notice what happens, this angel. And notice how John describes what he sees. He says, first, I see this angel take and seize Satan. Not only does he seize him, but he bounds him. Not only does he bind him, but throws him into the pit. And not only does he throw him into the pit, he shuts the pit and then seals the pit over top of him. Now, what I want you to see in these opening verses of what's happening in this text, of what John sees, I, I need you to see this. We've talked about it multiple times. But I'm going to bring it to your attention again. What we are talking about here is Satan, a being, a literal, real being who walks upon this earth, who was cast out of heaven because he tried to overthrow God. You need to get this. He is completely and utterly dependent upon my Father. He can do nothing unless my Father allows him to do it. So when we think about Satan and God, oftentimes, too often, we think about two equal gods who are kind of fighting it out. And sometimes Satan is winning, sometimes God is winning. That is not the reality of the situation we have. Satan is completely and utterly under the thumb of God. My father controls everything that he does. My father calls the shots in his life. My father will determine how long he will live, and my father will determine when he's thrown off into judgment. Your father, my father, is in complete and utter control of this evil one called Satan. And get this, the only control that he will have in your life is what you allow him to have. Let me say that again. The only control that Satan can have in your life is that which you give him. As a follower of Christ, you have God living in you. For Satan to have an advantage over you, you must give him that advantage. You know this to be true. The temptation comes. We begin to justify it. I begin to justify it in my mind how that I need to participate in this. I think it would do us all well to understand that 
The one we're listening to is a defeated foe. He has no power over us as far as Christ's followers. Therefore, therefore, we can live for, king, for Christ. We can live for the king. Notice it seizes him, binds him, throws him into the pit, shuts it, and seals it over him that he might not deceive the nations any longer. When we look at the Scripture, when we look at the Bible, think of, think of the Bible as having two bookends. The first bookend, the first part of Genesis, we have a perfect environment here on earth. We have this perfect garden. We have no sickness. We have no disease. We have no division. We have no wars. We have none of that. We, we have, we have an, an animal kingdom by which Adam and Eve can interact with all of these animals that were, in our culture, in our context, are vicious and would rip you to shreds. In theirs, it was not the case. We see that the Bible tells us that, that Adam and Eve were, were naming the animals. That Adam had that responsibility. And there's no animosity there. There's no brokenness there. There's no, well, evil in the world. So that's at the front part of the Bible. Now, at the end part of the Bible, where we are now at in the Revelation, we are now getting back to a state of the world that is exactly the way it was prior to the fall. But everything in between, where you and I live right now, Everything in between these two bookends is evil, brokenness, sickness, cancer, heart disease, broken families, addictions, you name it. All of that the result of the fall. All of that the result of Satan, the worker of darkness, all of that connected to him. So when he is bound, notice this, when he is bound, it says that he will not deceive the nations any longer. So all of that brokenness, all of that fallenness, all of that sickness, and all of that curse connected to him. And when he is bound, the earth will finally be in a place of beauty, perfection, joy, and peace. Because the one who is stirring up everything in this world is now bound. So in this thousand-year reign, Satan is bound. Our entire existence from birth until death is characterized by the fall. The reason you're separated from God in your fallenness, in your brokenness, for those of you who have not put your faith in Jesus, the reason you are in that state is because you were born into that state. All of us fallen, broken people. And only Christ is the one who can deliver us out of that. So the first characteristic of this incredible period of time in our future is there'll be no more sin, no more evil, no more temptation. There'll be, the hospitals will have to close. If you're working in the healthcare field, I'm sorry, but there won't be any hospitals. There won't be any IVs. There won't be any cardiac arrest. There won't be any more cancer treatment centers. There won't be any need for any of that because all of that is now gone. So the characteristic is there'll be no more temptation, no more demonic power. Look at the second characteristic. It says here in verse uh, 3, it says, until a thousand years were ended. If you look on down in these first seven verses, you'll see thousand years mentioned six times in seven verses. A thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. Now, when you begin to study the Bible and you begin to maybe use other resources such as commentaries or maybe use a website, oftentimes you won't get too far into God's Word and you'll find people who disagree on things, right? And they'll disagree and there'll be this little camp over here that agrees on this and there'll be this little camp over here and they all write books and they produce blogs and podcasts on why their team is right and everyone else is wrong. This text, this particular text, has some controversy connected to it because there's different factions that believe different things. One group says, well, a thousand years doesn't really mean a thousand years. It just means a long period of time. 
Another group says, well, don't get caught up in, in any of that. It doesn't really mean anything. It's symbolic for, for a good prevailing. Let me ask you a question. If, if the Bible says six times in seven verses, a thousand years, and if the word, the Greek word for a thousand is not used anywhere else in the entire Bible except right here, and John makes a point to say it six times in seven verses. Can we all just agree that John is talking about a literal 1,000 years? Can we be okay with that? Because I'm okay with that. 1,000 years, I think, means 1,000 years, as best I can tell. I don't see any reason to add anything else to it. Why is that important? Well, the reason it's important is that right here in this time we call the millennium, there are some incredible things happening on this planet things that we've never witnessed, things we've never seen, things we've longed for, things we've hoped to see, but we're going to see it at this point, and it's going to be right here and all. It's not, it's not up in heaven somewhere. It's here on this planet. So let me, let me give you a text, and we're going to turn to it. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. I want you to read this with me because it's a powerful text. Isaiah is a prophet, and Isaiah wrote 600 years before Christ came in Bethlehem. So Isaiah, we consider to be a major prophet. The reason we call him a major prophet is because his, his prophecy, his book is very, very large. There's a lot of verses, a lot of chapters in Isaiah. And all through the book of Isaiah, we have prophecies. In other words, Isaiah is predicting something that would happen. For example, Isaiah predicted with incredible accuracy the arrival of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, he predicted his ministry, that, that Jesus would minister to the poor and broken. He, he predicted completely, with incredible accuracy, how Jesus would die on a cross. If you remember Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, an incredible picture of Jesus' suffering 600 years before Jesus was even born. So if we pick it up in chapter 11, look at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots that shall, a branch from his roots that shall bear fruit. Now, the prophets write with incredible imagery. So let me give you just a little background on what Isaiah is saying here. If you back up into the previous chapter, chapter 10, those last few verses, there, there's an imagery there that Isaiah gives of, of the nation of Israel. And the imagery that he gives is like a, a forest of trees that have been cut down. So the idea is, is that because of the judgment that God pours out on Israel, because of the choices that Israel's making, Isaiah sees it as a great, vast forest of trees that have been cut off to the ground and there's nothing left but stumps. And so in your mind's eye, if you can imagine what Isaiah is describing, you look at a great massive forest, maybe like the Redwood Forest of California, and imagine that entire forest just cut to the ground. And there's nothing left but dust and maybe ashes and just no life. And, 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 and Isaiah says that's what the nation of Israel looks like. He says, but there's this one stump, and all the stumps, there's this one stump and there's this one little green shoot of growth coming out of that stump. He says that it's the stump of Jesse. What does he mean by that? Well, Jesse is the father of David. David will become the king of a unified Israel. And the prophets tell us, and even Jesus told us, that he will sit on the throne of David. That, that Jesus being in the lineage of Judah, in the lineage of Jesse, in the lineage of David that he will be the king who reigns forever. So now let's read on. 
So then Isaiah says, And the spirit of shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So then when we look at Jesus' life in the Gospels, we see exactly that. We see Jesus teaching like no one ever taught. We see Jesus healing people. We see Jesus doing things that no one else could do. So he is, he is a wise leader. He is an incredible leader. And, and Isaiah predicts that this is who Messiah will be. He'll be, that, he'll be that fruit from the stump of Jesse. Let's read on. You jump over to verse 4. But with righteousness he will judge the poor. And he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Hmm. That sounds a whole lot like what we looked at last week. Remember what we saw last week with the Battle of Armageddon? What did, about, what did John say? A sword came forth from his mouth and destroyed his enemies? Isaiah said that would happen 600 years before Jesus was ever born. Now thousands of years before the event has ever happened. Isaiah has already predicted it. Look at verse 6. Now this is where it gets odd. This is where it gets strange. I'll admit it. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. All right, what do we know about a lamb and a wolf when they get together? Well, when they get together, one's a buffet, and one gets his belly filled, right? That's what we know. That's the world we live in. The world we live in, if you put a wolf and a lamb together in a pen, one's going to come out on top, and it will not be the lamb, Okay? Now, when we read Isaiah's prophecies, we, we see, okay, there's, there's elements of Isaiah's prophecy that are fulfilled in Jesus in the life, the three and a half years of ministry, right? But then there's other things we read, it's like, well, no, that, we haven't seen that yet. So nowhere in our history have we seen ever since the fall, have we ever seen where a, a lamb and a wolf could be friends, buddies. <laughs> read on, notice what else it says. It says, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Same imagery. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a child will lead them. Okay, I, you know, I don't know if you've been to the Ashbury Zoo, but there's one thing I'm pretty certain I'm never going to do. I'm never t- going to let my son climb over the railing into the lion's den. I'm pretty, pretty confident that I'm never going to do that because that would be a very bad idea, right? But what Isaiah is describing here is a time in which children will be able to lead animals that are predators in our context. Well, read on. It gets even more strange. Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze. <laughs> Did you get that? The cow and the bear shall graze. Now, I've, I've been in the mountains. I've hiked in the mountains. I've seen black bears. Uh, I've never seen a black bear out eating grass in the field. Okay, there's grizzly bears that you see on National Geographic out there in the water. What are they catching? They're catching salmon because they're, they're meat eaters. They're carnivores. That's what they do. But in this time that Isaiah is talking about here, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this, he's talking about a time where predators, instead of eating meat, are going to eat grass like a cow. It's crazy. Look at this. Verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. Now listen, I told you last week, I'm not a big, I'm not a big fan of horses. All right? I'm equally not a big fan of snakes. And here, Isaiah is predicting a time where a child will be able to play around a hole where there are venomous snakes. Well, again, nowhere in our history has this ever been possible. Verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All right, so 
Isaiah was not talking about the time when Jesus was on this earth, his ministry, those three and a half years. None of this happened. So Isaiah is talking about something that is yet in our future. And let me tell you when that is. It fits into Revelation 20 when Jesus is reigning upon the earth that not only will he reign in peace and justice and love and completion of all that have been promised, but get this, the curse is going to be pulled off the planet. It's going to be like it was when Adam and Eve were here. Because get this, when Adam and Eve were here, that's what they saw, what Isaiah describes. And Isaiah is not looking back, he's looking forward. And the only time in our future that I can figure out that this works is when Jesus is reigning upon the earth in this 1,000, literal 1,000 year reign. And in that moment, there's going to be absolute peace, even in the animal kingdom, even among the snakes and the leopards and the bears that would rip you to shreds today in that time because Jesus Christ will not only rule the kingdom of man, but he will rule the kingdom of earth and all of its creation, all that was created by him, through him, for him, and he holds all things together. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following, in that moment, he will rule all. And what an incredible time that's going to be. I'll get to enjoy that. It's going to be an awesome time. One more thing before we go back to Revelation, verse 12. He will raise a signal for the nations and assemble the banished of Israel and gather them, the dispersed of Judah, from the four corners of the earth. Now go back to Revelation 20 and let me explain that. The Bible indicates that there will be a time where God's people, the nation of Israel, will gather and they will be saved. In other words, they will confess Jesus as Messiah. I believe that what John or what Paul wrote in, Rev, in Romans chapter 11, I'll get it out, I think it's Romans eleven twenty six. 26, he says there will be a time when the nation, the people that are left, the Israelite nation, will express faith in Jesus and be saved. I think it's during the millennium. I think it's when they come into this place where Jesus is now ruling and they will honor him. The Bible tells us that he will rule, Jesus will rule from Jerusalem. Later in that same chapter, it says that there will be a highway made from, from Judah all the way through Egypt, and people will travel in and out. People from all over the world will travel there and see Jesus face-to-face and worship him for those thousand years. So what does this millennium kingdom look like? Well, there's no more evil. It'll last a thousand years, and Jesus will rule there. Third thing I want you to see, and this is the, the hardest part, is not only will it last a thousand years, not only will there be no more evil, But he talks about something called the first resurrection. Notice this. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those in authority to judge. To judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image or received its mark on their foreheads or in their head, they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So later in this text, another verse down, he talks about something called the first resurrection. Now, this is where the text gets really difficult. But what I want to do is try to break this down because it goes back to what I started talking about, that you are, you are both flesh and spirit, and that spirit soul part of you is going to live forever. So the only way we can make sense of what's happening in Revelation 20 is to understand that, that even at death, it's not a period, it's a comma. So your loved ones who have died are not, well, they don't cease to exist. So this first resurrection that that he talks about, the first resurrection actually encompasses more than one event. And and this, look, that verse 5 right there, it it really kicked my tail this week. I I spent so much time on verse 5 because I was having a hard time making sense of, okay, people have died, 
but yet they're being resurrected. And why is that? Why, if people are dying and they're with Christ, then, then what is this whole resurrection about? Well, here's what I figured out. That when he says the first resurrection, he's actually talking about a whole scope of events, not just one thing. So, for example, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection of Jesus, he says there that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. In other words, when we talk about resurrection, our attention has to come to Jesus Christ immediately because he is the first one to ever die, resurrect, and never to die again. You may be thinking, well, what about Lazarus? You know, Jesus called Lazarus back to life. Get this, Lazarus had two funerals. <laughs> Pretty incredible. Talk about uh, a lot of mourning for one guy. The guy died, John chapter 11. Jesus brings him back to life, and then he dies again later on. Okay, so, so Lazarus, while he was resurrected, he still died a second time. Jesus never, ever, will ever die again. He is resurrected in power and authority, and he has overcome death, victor over death. So this is the first part or the first stage of the first resurrection, Jesus being the first fruits. And Jesus said that there would be more who would follow him in resurrection. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? But there's another part of the resurrection, first resurrection. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. You don't have to turn over there. But in First Thessalonians chapter 4, we have this episode that is still yet to come. We if you've been around the church, you've heard this word used. It's called a rapture. That word is not actually used in the Bible, but it, it talks about a concept of being caught up together. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writes about this event that is still future where Jesus comes back in the clouds. There are trumpets that blow. Now get this. The dead in Christ, those who have died but had had their faith in Jesus, they will burst forth from the grave. Okay, you're with me. All right, so trumpet sounds. Jesus in the clouds, not on earth. A great shout happens. The graves of those who've died in Christ will burst forth. They will come out of the grave. And then it says that in that moment, the second thing that's going to happen is all those who are in Christ and alive at that moment will be instantaneously taken up into the clouds to meet Jesus. That's as mind-blowing as cow, uh, bears eating grass, right? So at that moment, when you read that text, you think, well, wait a minute, hold on, hold on. I thought that I heard that preacher say at my loved one's funeral that, that my loved one was with Jesus, but now you're telling me that when Jesus comes back, a grave is going to burst forward. So is my loved one in the grave, or are they in heaven? That's a good question, is it not? Well, it's both. <laughs> Your loved one is in heaven. If your loved one died in Christ, they are with Christ right now. Make no mistake about it. They are happy. They are well. They are healthy. And listen, they are worshiping Christ forever and ever, and they're not even thinking about what time it is. They're fine. But that body that they had, it was planted in a grave, and it's been breaking about. I had somebody ask me this morning about, well, what, what about someone who was, uh, someone's body who was burned instead of, instead of being uh, put in a grave. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. Jesus who created you is able to, to do that which you cannot even begin to conceive or imagine. And whether, you're, whether your family was cremated or whether they're in a grave, doesn't matter. This event's still going to be the same. Here's what happens. That soul spirit that is in heaven is going to be reunited with a glorified body in that moment. This first resurrection, remember Jesus resurrected. When they saw Jesus, they touched his body. 
He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a spirit. He had a body. They could touch him. Jesus eats fish with Peter by the, by the side of the water. He had a body, but it was different than, than what they'd seen before. It was a glorified body. Those who've died in Christ will be resurrected from the grave, and that soul spirit will be reunited with a glorified body, a body that can handle eternity, a body that will never age, a body that will never get sick, a body that can stand in the very presence of God and not disintegrate, a body that has been made whole, a body that never has a fever, a body that never bleeds, a body that doesn't have a broken bone, a body that will live forever. That is what happens in the first resurrection when the church is resurrected out of this broken world. That's what's coming. So listen, the reality is, is the first resurrection that is talked about in Revelation 20 is a whole bunch of different events. Now we've got Jesus' resurrection. We've got the resurrection of the church. Now in Revelation 20, here's what we have. It says here that those, that those souls who've been beheaded for their testimony of Jesus and the Word of God, those who have not worshipped the beast or its image and not received the mark on their foreheads or hands, they came to life. Notice that right there in that verse, John sees souls, but then he says they came to life. What we have here is the next phase, the final phases of the first resurrection, that those who died during the tribulation for their faith, those that the Antichrist put to death, those who suffered for Christ and died, they will be reunited with their soul spirit with a glorified body, and they will be there in that millennial reign. So now, in this millennial reign, in this thousand years, who do we have here? We have those who've rode with Christ on the white horses. I'll be included in that. We've already received our glorified bodies. We're already there with Jesus. All right, then we have, then we have the tribulation saints, those who've died following Jesus in the tribulation. They're going to be brought in to this moment. Now, their soul spirit was already with Jesus, but in this moment, they're going to be reunified, reunited with a glorified body. Okay? There's another group that's going to be there that's going to be called forth. You don't see it directly in this text, but also we believe that during this time, those Old Testament saints are going to be brought in to this millennial reign. So where is Job? Where is Abraham? Where is Isaac and Jacob? And where is Esther? And where is Ruth? And by, are we going to get to sit and talk with them? Well, yes, we are. And I'm going to spend a whole lot of time talking to these folks because what I've been reading, what I've been reading and trying to imagine in my mind's eye will become reality, and I'll be able to see and talk and sit with him for all eternity and, get, and catch up and find out how it all played out, right? And all the things that I preached wrong about their life, <laughs> and all the things I got wrong and said that was really stupid, they're going to say, you know, you, you were way off course on this particular part of my life. <laughs> all right. You remember, the, you remember Ezekiel chapter 37? So it's a very beautiful chapter. It's this moment where the prophet walks into this valley. And while he's in this valley, God begins to show him a vision. And he looks around in this valley, and you know what's in that valley? Bones. There's bones everywhere. Y'all remember a song about it when you were a kid, right? Well, Ezekiel's in this valley, and God says to Ezekiel, as he looks around all these dead bones, you got some skulls over here, and you know, some arm bones over here and leg bones over there and some ribs over here. There's bones everywhere. And they're dry and parched. There's no flesh on them. There's, I mean, they're beyond, they're graveyard dead, beyond dead, they're dead. Dead as dead can be, all right? God says to Ezekiel, hey, Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? And Ezekiel says, a really good answer, uh, God, you know. <laughs> That's a good answer. That's a really good answer. God, you know. 
rumbling begins to happen. Bones begin to come together. Uh, skeletons begin to form, skin, ligaments, muscles, tissue, organs. Next thing you know, Ezekiel's looking at a massive army of human beings who were once dry bones. And in verse 14, God says to Ezekiel, now Ezekiel, you need to know something, that I will bring my people out of the grave and I will place my spirit in them. When does that happen? It happens in the millennium as part of the first resurrection. That God will call forth those Old Testament saints. Now remember, those soul spirits are already with God, reunited with a glorified body. So now we have not only those in the church age that rode with Christ on those white horses with glorified bodies, we also have those tribulation saints who died uh, standing firm for Christ in the tribulation, their glorified bodies. Now we have the Old Testament saints gathered together in this millennial reign where I'll be able to look over and, oh, there's Job. Oh, there's Abraham. Now I got something I need to ask you. But there's another group of people here that we haven't even talked about. There's a whole other group of people who did not die in the tribulation. They remained faithful to Christ, but they didn't die. They did not join in in the battle of Armageddon because they worshiped and honored Christ. And they lived until this moment. They lived to see Jesus return. They, they were living on the earth, worshiping Jesus, and saw us riding on horses to come down to this great battle. They are there. So what about them? Well, the interesting thing about them is while everyone else has glorified bodies, they don't. They still have a human body. And the crazy thing about it is, is that they're going to be able to have children in the millennium. Everything I can read, especially in Isaiah and Ezekiel, seems to indicate that this group of people will still continue to have children and families. And during this thousand-year reign where there's absolute peace and absolute joy and plenty of food, there'll be no more poverty. There'll be, there'll be no more people living in tents. There'll be, there'll be no shortage of food. There'll be no shortage of worship for Christ a perfect environment, almost like it was with Eden, almost exactly the same. And these folks will have the privilege of coming into that environment and seeing all of that. And that brings us to the next problem in the text, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Why? You ever wonder why? I've wondered why. He's the last enemy. Everyone else has been wiped out. He, he's the last enemy in that he still has to be dealt with. But why is he going to be released? Let's read on. And will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Well, wait a minute. If we're living in this perfect, almost Eden-like state, then why is Satan deceiving? And then when you read on, you find out that people are deceived again and that they bind together and that they once again try to overthrow God himself. Does this sound like a reoccurring theme? How many times have we seen this now? Well, who are those people who rebel? Well, get this. Those who come into the millennium, who, who came in as they survived the tribulation, who were followers of Christ, will have offspring. And these offspring will have offspring. And get this, 
They've never been tested. They've never known any other environment other than Jesus Christ, him ruling in righteousness. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, they had never known anything else except perfect communion with God until the serpent shows up in the garden and gives them a plan B. You see, the reality is the only way that you can choose Christ is to choose Christ over something else. Now, all those who are in this millennium kingdom who who've received their glorified bodies, they're not going to be tempted. They can't be because they have new bodies. But for those who came into the kingdom, came into this millennial reign, and had offspring, those children who still have natural bodies to some degree, well, they've only known Jesus. They haven't known a plan B. So what God does is he releases Satan for a little while to make them choose whom they're going to serve. And get this, in spite of all that they've seen, in spite of the incredible love and joy and peace that they have experienced in this thousand-year millennial reign, there will be a number of people who will reject Christ all over again. Not a Christ somewhere in heaven, not a Christ who's hidden, but a Christ who lives right in front of them. A group of people who've heard all the stories, not just, not just having God's word where they believe it by faith, but they can talk to Abraham and they can talk to Job and they can talk to the 12, the 11 disciples. And yet, they were rejected. And they will gather together in cities like Gog and Magog, and they will come and try to unseat God yet again. Well, the final battle, which is really no battle at all, fire will be called down, they will be consumed. And the last part of this millennial kingdom will be where Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, never, ever to come out again. Now, that lake of fire, we, we think of hell, and we think, oh, there's people in hell now. If we're, if we're thinking of hell as the lake of fire, then, then understand that there's nobody there yet. Now, at this point in history, the Antichrist will be there, the false prophet will be there, and then the Satan will be thrown into there. That's it. Well, where are all those other people who have rejected Christ? We're going to talk about that next week because there's one more part one more part of this resurrection that you need to see. There's going to be a time after the millennial reign where Jesus is going to call for all the dead who rejected him, and they're going to stand before Christ in what we know to be the great white throne judgment. And at that moment, Christ is going to render judgment on all those who've rejected him all through down space and time. Even those in the Old Testament who rejected faith in God, they will all be judged. And that will wrap up the final part of the resurrection, when the resurrected dead who rejected Christ will stand before him and give an account. So what do we do with all of this this morning? I didn't give you all this just to give you a whole bunch of facts. I didn't give you all this just so we could dream about the future. I gave you all this this morning, for lack of a better word, to confront you with a reality. And the reality is, is that on the inside of you, the real you, what makes you, you, There will never be a time where you will cease to exist. I know you're living by the clock. Even now, you're looking at it going, oh, good, he's landing the plane. You live by a clock here. And our, our lives are completely consumed with two hours from now, six hours from now, 12 hours from now, tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday. 
day after day and week after week and month after month, time is just passing by and passing by. In, in that rut of, of time that we live in, we don't think about eternity. So, so if we take a, take a cup of water and we go down to uh, North Myrtle Beach and we walk out on the beach and we pour that cup of water in the ocean, what difference have we really made there, right? I mean, a cup of water versus trillions of gallons of water. What, what difference did I make? Well, your life, like a cup of water, but the difference is, is that what you do in this life determines what your eternity is going to look like. Now, we need to slow down for a moment, and we need to wrap our arms around this for just a moment. That this short life, if we think about eternity, a, cu- a cup of water versus the ocean, right? If we think about our little life, this, this little cup of water we hold in our hand, live 100 years. Maybe, maybe you live to be 120. Maybe you break the world record, and you live to whatever that world record is. Compared to the ocean is nothing but a little vapor of time. That's what Solomon says in that book of Ecclesiastes. He says, your life is like a vapor. It's like steam. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. So that that little bit of time you've been given, could it really have that much influence over eternity that is in front of us? And I would say, on the authority of God's Word, the choices you make now determine what that eternity is going to look like. And make no mistake about it, you will be alive, you will be aware, and you will be you. Two billion years from this day, you will still be you. Five billion years from now, you will still be you. And there is no one else like you in the universe. Have you ever thought about that? In my prayer time this week, I was, I was praying with the Lord, and I just, I don't know, the Lord just kind of t- took me down this road. It was based on some, some uh, psalms I was reading, and I began to think about, and all the humanity that has ever lived upon this planet, regardless of what you think about when the world began and how it began, all the human beings, have lived, there's never been another person like me and like you. There's never going to be another pe- person like you. You may have a twin. But man, you and that twin are different, are you not? There's no one else like you. So in all, all of eternity, there will never be another you. And make no mistake about it, that Imago Day, that God's image in you, you will be you five billion years from now. But that, that is less of importance to where you will be spending that time. And it comes down to the choices you make now. In this little cup of water, this little, little bit of life that we have now on this planet, we have been put before us life and death. We've been put before us light and darkness. We have put before us good news and bad news. And you consciously choose which you're going to accept and which you're going to believe. The real you will exist forever. There is no end. The grave is not a period. It's a comma. That is true for the believer in Christ, but it's also true for the one who rejected Christ. It is not a period. It's a comma. You also need to understand that your loved ones. Come on, brother. Miss Janice? Right now, Janice? Your mother. Okay. All right. Let's let's pray. Thank you, brother. Go ahead. Get on out of here, brother. Go ahead. Thanks for letting me know. Father in heaven, we pause right now. And we pray for David's mother. Um, 
we ask that you'd intervene. We ask, Father, that you would bring healing. Pray, Father, that you give peace. Pray, Father, that you give clarity to the family members that are going there now. Pray for the medical health care that are already involved, maybe the EMS or whoever else is involved. Give them clarity in this moment as they're working with this loved one. Father, we, we pray for David as he travels there. Give him peace. And Father, we don't walk by what we see. We walk by faith. And Father, just as right now as we're talking about what it means to live in eternity, right now, Father, a loved one is in that place, Lord, that place of between this life and the next. And Lord, we know that you know the outcome. We know, Father, that you're in control. So, Father, we just pray that uh, you bring healing and comfort. We ask it in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ, the righteous. Amen. Y'all continue to pray for his family. I know, I just know how close they are, and I just, I just ask that you lift them up. The second thing you need to know is that your loved ones who have died in Christ are with Christ now. So when we read texts like this about a resurrection and people being brought back to life, if, you, if you're not careful you can begin to think that your loved one is in that grave or in that urn or, or maybe you lost a loved one in the war somewhere and, and there, there, there was never a casket that came home. Make no mistake about this, that the moment we close our eyes to this life in Christ, we are in the presence of our King at that moment. Jesus says, I've gone to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and get this. I will receive you unto myself that where I am, you may be also. Now, either Jesus is a liar, either, he, either Jesus is a straight-up liar, lunatic, or he's telling us something about the reality of death and life, and that death is not a period, it's a comma. How could it be a period if Jesus says, you'll be with me? The body you have now will not inherit eternity. I praise God for that because as older I get, the more my body's begin to break down. You don't have to give an amen there. I'd appreciate it if you didn't. But nonetheless, uh, my body's not cut out for eternity. It's just not. I'm going to have to have something new to, to live with Jesus in that place of worship. I'm going to need a body that can be in the presence of God without exploding. This body can't handle it. That new body that I will get can. And then finally, when you die, you go to one of two places. Just as much as a period, it's not a period for the believer in Christ that dies. It's not a period for the one who dies apart from Christ. As hard as that is to hear and as hard as that is to say, the reality is there's only two options here. We've seen it all through the book of Revelation. You're either following Jesus or you're not. You're either with him or you're against him. You're either an alien on the outside looking in or you're part of the family of God. We can go on and on with the analogies, but the fact is, you're either a son or you're an alien. You're either in or you're out. You're either walking in light or you're walking in darkness. You're either following Christ or you're following Satan. And the choice you make between those two options sets your eternity in place. So don't play around with the life you have now. Live it for something Something greater than yourself or this culture or money or fame. Living for something greater than that. Because all that has an end. But your life never ends. 
Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.